So it seems redundant to say much after that. That's the Chenrezig meditation or Avalokiteshvara meditation of Tibetan Buddhism, of Adriana Buddhism, of the Diamond Path Tibetan Buddhism, including the four boundless heartitudes, the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, however we like to translate that word, the four faces of Buddhist love, karuna, compassion, unconditional compassion, maitri or metta, loving kindness, mudita, sympathetic joy or rejoicing in the good fortune and virtues of others, and spiritual detachment or equanimity equal to all, impartiality equal to all, the four faces or arms of Buddhist love as represented as represented by the four arms of Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva Bodhisattva, the Grand Bodhisattva, embodying the Buddhist qualities of unconditional love and compassion, joy, forgiveness, and so on, all the so-called gentle virtues. Avalokita, Chenrezig, Kuan Yin in China, the most popular form of Buddha in Far East Asia. Kuan Yin, the female Buddha goddess, as they call her. Kanon in Japan, Kanzion in Korea, by any other name, she's still as sweet. So cultivating, of course, there are no external gods or goddesses in the Buddhist way of thinking, but cultivating these qualities, emulating them, making the affirmative resolves to, may this be so, may we be like that. Cultivating, bhavana is the essence of Buddhist practice, as I'm sure you know. Not meditating on loving kindness, cultivating loving kindness is the Buddhist way. Metta bhavana, as we say in Pali in the East. Cultivation of loving kindness, cultivation of compassion, cultivation of mindfulness. That's the definition of meditation practice or spiritual development in the Buddhist tradition. Putting the responsibility firmly where it belongs in our own hands, where it is anyway. So we can awaken, so we can develop, so we can practice and reap the results. You know, Buddha's teaching, his famous teaching, and I'm sure you're all well familiar with it. I can see in your auras many Buddhist book titles and other tchotchkes that you had home hanging on your walls and, you know, many veteran of foreign retreats, medals and things like that, especially over there, VFRs, veteran of foreign retreats. And we love to get together and exchange our war stories from those retreats. Oh, the food. Oh, no hot water. Oh, my room was so small that I, even caddy corner, I had to be like a jackknife rather than lie flat at night. Oh, the mosquitoes during those one-hour non-moving vows. Yes. That's why I'm, I'm very much in favor of Buddhism in America. <laughs> Not that we don't have our own sufferings to bear. Oh, this chair, these pews are so hard. Oh, my God, and that water fountain, the, the water is this. Not even, you know, Perrier. <laughs> Not to mention all the inner crap we carry around with us that we have to deal with wherever we are. Buddhist teachings, famous, you know, the renowned and effective teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth truth, 
If I had a blackboard or, you know, some modern educational tools, I could just beam it right out there in space holographically. Buddhism 101, we all know the Four Noble Truths and the Fourth Truth. The path to nirvana is the Eightfold Path, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, Eightfold Path, the Eight-Step Recovery Program for samsara-holics through which we can recover our true life, our authentic life of freedom and delight, as Buddha did, as millions have. The four truths, the, eight, the fourth truth, which is the Eightfold Path, and the six or ten paramitas, the transcendental virtues. I don't like to translate them as perfections, too perfectionistic. Virtues, transformative practices, the bodhisattva virtues, the ten paramis or six paramitas. How have we talked in Pali or Sanskrit? Which is the subject of my new book, Buddha's as Buddha Does, the Ten Transformative Practices. This is Buddhism 101. You can read it all about it. You know, it's easy to find on the web or in my books or in numerous books. I don't think Shyla has any books yet, but you should squeeze her a little, get her to work harder. It's kind of good. good. Shyla knows a lot. She straightened me out today about a few things about the Satipatthana Sutra and mindfulness and a few other things while we were riding around in her jalopy. <laughs> Lost. <laughs> if you want, if your books are too tiring and old fashioned, just go on YouTube. You can find my 10 minute spiel about Buddhism 101, the Four Truths, and the Eightfold Path. It's not that hard to find. But how do we find Buddha's enlightened experience ourselves? I think that's the real question anywhere, anytime. You know, the Western religions are called, if you study these things, world religion, sociology, religion, history, religions of the book, the three Western monotheistic religions. I'm not going to remind you what they are. You can remember, perhaps, the three Western religions that we know so little about but seem more familiar to us than Eastern religions. Religions of the book. Buddhism is not a religion of the book. Of course, there are voluminous sutra scriptures a hundred volumes at least of the sutra scriptures, Buddhist canon, and so on, sutras, Vinaya, and Abhidharma, and later commentaries, and all that. But it's not a religion of the book. Buddhism is based on the Buddha's enlightenment experience, the enlightenment experience that Buddha promised anybody can experience by pursuing, cultivating, developing such a path. I don't like to say following such a path. Buddha didn't advocate followership. He didn't want to be worshipped. He didn't want to have images of himself and so on. Of course, human nature being what it was later, things like that came about. But Buddha promised that anybody, I mean, Buddha was kind of scientific, an early scientist in a way, among other things. Let me just float this here since we're in Silicon Valley and you know, many of you probably have engineering or scientific bent. As does Shyla, actually. I know Shyla's quite the mathematician, if you don't know. I just want to mention that. He's very sharp. Buddha teaching was very scientific. He said, if you reproduce the, this experiment of the Eightfold Path, you can replicate the same results in yourself. Is that not the essence of the scientific method? Not needing any beliefs, cosmology, creed, dogma. He didn't say you have to believe in rebirth. He didn't say you have to be a vegetarian. He didn't even say you have to sit and meditate cross-legged till your knees and back fall out. Meditation is about awareness practice, not about posture, after all. 
So if we replicate Buddha's experiment, we can reproduce his result, and millions have. Not just only one begotten son of Buddha, you know, like Jesus, the only begotten son. We have to find the Christos, the light in all of us, the Godhead in all of us, in each of us. That's what we call in Buddhism, Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature, the innate Buddhiness in all sentient beings. That we're all endowed with the luminous Buddha nature, not just human beings, not just Buddhists, not just our friends and neighbors here in the upper middle path. <laughs> Look around the room, friends and neighbors. Not just human beings, all sentient beings endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. This is a radical, egalitarian, democratic war cry in 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago before women could vote, before blacks were franchised, and so forth. Buddha said anybody could become as enlightened as he did, male or female, young or old. Let me go further, and he may not have said this, Buddhist or otherwise. You don't have to be a Buddhist to become a Buddha. If you replicate this experiment, you can reproduce these results. Then you'd be better than most Buddhists who are still just joiners of the newest fad, the newest club. Why become a mere Buddhist when you become a Buddha? So in Tibetan, in the Dzogchen tradition, and I'm just translating from the Tibetan here, I never had an original thought in my life. I don't know, did you? In the Havadra Tantra, the Dzogchen Tantra says, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to realize that fact, to realize who and what we are, realize our true nature, our original nature, our Buddhiness. Even calling it Buddha nature makes it sound too foreign. Oh, Buddha. A long dead white male that used to live over there in the East Coast somewhere. East. Buddha. That's heresy. Buddha's not outside. Buddha's not a person. Buddha is a mirror. It's an icon, archetype of enlightenment in which to see our own enlightened nature. That's what the teacher is for. Not to collect mirrors, to see our own enlightened nature. Not to collect gurus, teachers, and so forth, and experiences. But to look in the mirror of the enlightenment experience and recognize who and what we truly are. We're all Buddhas by nature, not Buddhists. Buddhas by nature, according to the non-dualistic or direct access teaching of Mahamudra Dzogchen, the non-dual teaching of Zen. We can also find this deep in the Theravadan scriptures, the unconditioned, our true nature, the unconditioned, of which all conditions are like the form of the unconditioned nature of all things. That is our luminous Buddha nature. Beyond Buddha, isms and schisms or forms, not just Buddha statue sitting in the garden meditating. You know, Buddha didn't sit and meditate all day. He was a social activist also for 45 years walking all over India. This is what my new book's about, that meditation and prayer and yoga are very good and important. And we all need to add this contemplative dimension to our busy, westernized, modern life, of course. But it's not enough. We all have to make a positive contribution in the world and participate. No one of us can do it all, but no one is exempt from participating. And we're all in the same boat. We all rise or fall, sink or swim together. This is the raison d'etre, the reason for being of Mahayana Buddhism, the great vehicle of universal deliverance, realizing how can I be happy and at peace if my family, my neighbors, my country, and my world is in crisis, at war, and environmental disaster. How can I rest on my nirvanic laurels? So it's a balance. 
between working on ourselves and working together you know, to transform the world. Awakening ourselves awakens the world. As the Zen teaching says, according to Zen teaching, Buddha said, you know, we often hear people say, Buddha said, Buddha said, but I think it's good to have context. According to the Zen teaching, Buddha said, when I was awakened, all were awakened, even the rocks and the trees. Now that's a very powerful statement if it resonates with you. If it doesn't, never mind. He's talking about primordial perfection. As the Christian mystics sang, I forget her name, all is well and all shall be well in this best of all possible worlds. This is not to ignore the horrors and injustices, world hunger, racism, and other things in our benighted world, of course. And yet, we need to balance this by seeing the other side of the darkness, which is the light, the shadows and nothing but light. We're not all bad. If we get to know ourselves better, we might learn to love and appreciate ourselves. Like it says in Tibetan, um, the Dzogchen Master Longchenpa, the vast, infinite master, he said, of course, in Buddhism, we always get stuck with the word mind when we talk in English. The heart-mind is magnificent in its natural state. Appreciate it as it is. You know, we don't all have to put our best foot forward all the time. Authenticity is what he's talking about, friends, not mind. The heart, mind, spirit is gorgeous, magnificent in its natural state. Appreciate it as it is. That means we have to see it as it is, though. How can we see it as it is when we're so bent out of shape, when we're intoxicated, when our views are distorted, when we have short-sightedness, long-sightedness, far-sightedness, near-sightedness, jaundice, see everything, white things is yellow. When we're bent out of shape, we can't tell upside from down. How can we see things as they are? Which, by the way, is the definition of wisdom in Buddhism, the first step on the Eightfold Path. Right view or, or, or wise view, clear visions, is wisdom in Buddhism, right? Seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. This is not a theory about emptiness or impermanence or shunyata or cosmology or rebirth or infinite lifetimes. We're not talking about omniscience or any magical powers. Wisdom in Buddhism, prajna, punya, jnana, is seeing things as they are, a combination of clear awareness and direct comprehension or understanding things, insight and awareness. But how can we clarify our vision? How is it true that when Buddha was awakened, all were awakened? When most of us feel like crap most of the time. I mean, how many prescriptions for antidepressants are there in America today? For Ritalin, five million children, and so on. How can we see things as they are when our, our view, our gaze, our attention is so scattered, distracted, and obscured, obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, the traditional three poisons taught by Buddhism, obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, pride, and jealousy, the five poisons, obscured by all kinds of prejudices, interpretations, and misknowing. According to our school of Buddhism, Again, context is all important. Ignorance, not knowing, misknowing, avidya. Avidya is the root of all evil. Now you will hear in Buddhist teachings, I feel like I'm uh, giving the, the, 
the, the law thing at the beginning of the court trial. You will hear in this trial many other reports from different learned witnesses of different schools. <laughs> but <laughs> you will hear that desire or attachment is the root of all suffering. That is actually not really a very good translation or understanding. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion, avidya, is the root poison. That's why Buddhism stresses wisdom. Wisdom is the antidote to avidya, ignorance. Wisdom is the antidote, the panacea for all that ails us. It's the ignorance, it's the not knowing that brings the desire and aversion, greed and hatred, desire and aversion. From not knowing, at the center of the wheel of becoming is avidya, is ignorance. That's why enlightenment is the panacea, is the cure-all, wisdom. The wisdom of enlightenment, Buddha's enlightenment experience. The archetypal enlightenment experience represented by Buddha as a symbol that we also can have by reproducing experiment. We can replicate those results. We can become awakened, enlightened too, and realize our Buddha nature, our inherent freedom of being and completeness. Realizing peace at any speed, inner peace is beyond any speed. We can be centered and experience inner serenity and fulfillment, inner peace at any speed, even if we have to hurry sometimes. You know, sometimes you have to hurry. No problem. You don't always have to walk in slow motion like a zombie, like I see sometimes at certain meditation retreats that I've been in charge of. (laughs) I don't know if they've taken too much medication or they're practicing mindful walking. You never know. You know, people, they're always walking around in slippers. They never put on their shoes for 10 days. It's very, um, you know, it has certain commonalities with other uh, institutions. <laughs> I mean, I was in a three-year retreat. I didn't put on my shoes for three years. I walked around in slippers all the time. It was like a 30-year-old old fuddy-duddy. It was very amusing. But we were trying, treading the path, hopefully. So how can we clear our vision? That's where Buddhism, I think, has a real you know, secret to offer. Not the secret, that's not a secret of power, positive thinking that we see in the marketplace today, but really the secret ingredient of mindful awareness, the most powerful force in the world, spiritual consciousness, mindful awareness. It's not atomic energy. It's, you know, it's the mind that cracked the atom and released the atomic energy that was already there. And it's spiritual self-realization or insight and wisdom that cracks the ego and releases the energy, the infinite energy that we have all contained, caught up in holding our ego trip together. That's why enlightened masters are so universally, regardless of tradition, buoyant, spontaneous, free, creative, and at the same time peaceful. I'm a skeptic. I'm a New York Jew, I mean, on my parents' side anyway. <laughs> but I know at least one llama that never sleeps. Now, I'm not here to tell you fairy stories about flying and, you know, past lives or anything else, which, you know, I mean, everything's fine, anything's possible. But I've known him since he was 10 years old. He's 44 now. His own is Drukchurimche. He never sleeps. I mean, he might doze for half an hour, but he beds in pajamas and night and not part of his routine. He meditates and he's at rest and he's a 12th incarnation. He's been doing this a long time according to his tradition. And he doesn't have to sleep. He says sleeping makes him weak or tired. 
The Spirit is the most powerful thing in the world. I have seen this. I have lived with him since he was 10 years old. I've known him. I was his English teacher in the early 1970s in his monastery in Darjeeling. This, I'm not making this up. You know, I don't tell stories of magical mystery from Tibet stories like some do. Anything's possible. The awakened spirit, the, the Buddha mind, awareness itself, awareness which they would capital A, is the most powerful force in the world. That is Buddha's secret ingredient. And that's what we practice. Even the first day we learn to meditate. It's like skiing. You know, one of the great things about skiing, and I, I think you have skiing here, right, up in Tahoe or somewhere, is that you can ski on the first day. There's the bunny slope. You can ski. You can go fast. It's exciting. Skiing. You know, it's hard to get up on a surfboard the first day. It's hard to get up on water skis maybe the first day. But skiing, you can actually do the first day. That's like meditation. Cultivating awareness you can do right away. Now, you might not experience blissful peace and ease. You might not experience the concentrative absorptions, the eight jhanas or other stages of development of insight and so on. But you can definitely experience something, which is the point of transformative spirituality, not just congregational spirituality, joining and community and good works, but transformative personal practice. So we can become like these archetypal masters of the past, Buddha or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be, or Jesus or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be. No problem. Meditation. Awareness, practice, cultivating mindfulness is the active ingredient in all practices. Prayer without awareness is just parroting prayers. It has very little benefit. It's awareness, it's the mindfulness, the concentration in the prayer, the intention, the concentration that makes prayers active. Chanting, I mean, the parrots can chant. My late guru, the 16th Buddha Karmapa in his monastery in Sikkim, he had hundreds of birds in an aviary on his rooftop. He was famous kind of amateur ornithologist. He loved birds. Being an old Tibetan guy from Tibet, he didn't speak English. He, I mean, he called my parents mother and father, which they loved, but those were maybe the only two words he knew. He used to say that those birds were the reincarnation of the, 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 the lazy or fallen monks that he had in the last life. <laughs> but he, they still were, you know, they were still um, chanting. He taught them to chant mantra. So they used to chant his mantra, Karmapacheno. You'd go up on the roof, and he'd be there feeding them, and they'd be going, Karmapacheno, Karmapacheno. <laughs> you know, like kind of a parrot. But prayers without attention, without intention and attention, without mindfulness, concentration, awareness, a very little power. Yoga without awareness. It's only a calisthenic. But with awareness, you know, the eight-limbed yoga and all, there's so many levels to yoga Yoga means union with the divine or union with the natural state. Tibetan definition. Union with the natural state since we are missing the divine up there in Tibet. He's down in India in many ways. Faces. Yoga without awareness is just mere calisthenics, good only for momentary health. So awareness is the active ingredient. That's why I think meditation and yoga are so popular in this country today. These are the active transformative practices. Meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, the samadhi that comes with it that people are really getting a lot out of. It's a different kind of exercise, isn't it? Including like the corpse pose at the end of yoga. My wife says, I hate meditating. I say, but you love the corpse pose. She said, no, but that's yoga. 
And after doing yoga for an hour, lying down the course post for five or ten minutes is almost effortless. That's meditation. That's why a little chanting or a little bowing or some supportive practices could be very helpful to get to that effortless meditation. So it's not such a struggle. That's why in Tibetan Buddhism, we always have a meditation session divided into three parts. Just a little practical tip. There's the warm-up exercises, there's the main practice, and there's the cooling down, like exercise, physical exercise. The warm-up exercises like praying or bowing, altar practice or chanting and breathing exercises to warm up and relax, to turn our busy, worldly minds to the Dharma, the preliminaries first. And then the main non-conceptual awareness alone, naked awareness practice of just being without forms and prayers and words. And then third, going out singing, praying and chanting, generating loving kindness, sharing the merits, the positivities, concluding all in our prayers and so on. So three parts of a practice. So we do a little warm-up practice, like the little yoga, spiritual yoga is a praying and breathing and chanting and whatever, bowing. And then can just rest in the nature of awareness with less action. We, the warm-up practices help us undo our habitual, our big habit to overdo things. So we can just be. Then we can be a little. Then we go out with a little more doing that we can take it into the world through spiritual activism, compassion and action, service, karma, yoga, and so forth in our life. So I recommend that to you, especially if you're new at meditating. And I know here you're well-trained here in the Bay Area, Yana. But I just thought that that might be a little helpful to realize it's very hard sometimes to just get up in the morning and meditate without a little warm-up, spiritual warm-up. It's very hard just to come home from work, leap into lotus position, and meditate when the momentum of the day is still running. So I like to you know, come home and then maybe change my clothes and take a shower or exercise or do yoga and then begin a meditation session with a little chanting and praying and lighting a candle, a little altar practice, get the senses involved, you know, get involved. Take this momentum of the day of intense karmic involvement and turn it to spiritual involvement. And then after that, turning to spiritual involvement with the warm-up exercises, the preliminaries, then get into the non-doing, the just being, the awareness alone. And in that way, balancing doing and being in our practice, effort and non-effort, some directed or structured practice and some more structureless, trusting, choiceless, total awareness practice. A very good balance of doing and being, effort and effortless in our meditation. What we call in Tibetan balancing meditation with non-meditation. Non-meditation is a very sophisticated term. It doesn't mean what everybody's doing in general, just running around following the nose like animal. It means an effortless awareness, like when concentration is stable and it stays where it's placed. In the beginning, we have to cultivate placement of concentration, right? Placing it on an object of attention like the breath or a candle flame. Placing it and getting it to stay there. And when it wanders, bringing it back with the leash of mindfulness, bringing the wandering attention back to the object of concentration. After a while, it gets more stable and can just rest there. And then we can use it deeper to get insight into nature reality, wisdom and understanding. And the deepest meditation is the balance of concentration and insight, where it's panoramic and yet focused. Panoramic awareness, yet focused, not spaced out. 
So the Dzogchen teachings, and I want to get to the question period because that's really the ju- juiciest part usually. The Dzogchen teachings, of course, are the natural great perfection teachings of Tibet are, of course, based in the root teachings, the Sutrayana, the Theravadan teachings, and the Mahayana sutras of the Bodhisattva way of universal enlightenment and thinking of others before oneself and so on, compassion and wisdom inseparable, the Mahayana Bodhisattva path. But the Dzogchen teachings take it to another level of non-dual direct access enlightenment now in this way. Having already understood a little bit, gotten into the spiritual game, cleaned up our life and our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and good deeds, through concentration and collectedness, straightening our mind out like a Fletcher straightens the arrows. We straighten our mind out through meditation. Then comes a more wisdom understanding of interconnectedness and impermanence. So building on that, three basic Buddhist trainings that you're all familiar with, ethics, shila, samadhi, concentration, meditation, and third, wisdom, yes, shila, samadhi, panya, yes, ethical discipline, meditation, wisdom, built from the ground up, the three liberating trainings that if you unpack it, it form the Eightfold Path. Buddhism 101, the three liberating trainings, the Eightfold Path. The non-dual teachings talk about swooping down from above through view into the meditation of non-meditation, of natural awareness, and then to action or conduct in the world. Not building up, climbing up the spiritual path gradually from below, cleaning up our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and virtue and cultivating the positives and relinquishing the negatives and purifying ourselves of obscuring kalashas and all, leading to more concentration and clarity, leading to wisdom and insight. But swooping down from above with the natural awareness, the innate awareness, our natural spirituality, it's already there, like through interest. When we're interested, we have natural mindfulness, natural awareness. Swooping down from above with the view of the great perfection of seeing things just as they are, beyond having to improve or purify or tweak them at all. Acceptance, clear seeing and understanding. Swooping down with the view into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being. And noticing all the karmic conditionings that make it hard for us to just be. And seeing what we get out of following all these impulses. And so we can choose more intelligently and be more free and less reactive, more proactive, less reactive. Like through mindful awareness, creating some space between stimulus and response. Some space for mindfulness to give us choice between stimulus and knee-jerk blind response. Create the sacred pause, as Tara Brock calls it in her wonderful book, Radical Acceptance. Create the sacred pause through mindfulness. Give our mind more spacious time between stimulus and response to choose a more skillful, intelligent response rather than react, respond proactively. So swooping down with the view of things as they are, clear vision, everything a lawful unfolding just as it is, good and bad, beyond good and bad, as it is, into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being wholly, totally incandescently, lucidly present. And through that comes the natural Buddha activity, selfless, beneficial, Bodhisattva activity, liberating activity. View, meditation, action. Beginning with the view. Now this is actually based in the Buddhist approach. The Eightfold Path, remember, does not begin with Shila. It begins from above with wisdom. Yes? Step one and two on the Eightfold Path are wisdom. 
clear vision, right view is number one, and right intention or right understanding is number two. That's the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. If we had a board, it would be easy to see, yes. And then the next three, right speech, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then the next three, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So Buddha himself said, you must begin with the view to understand a little bit, to guide the meditation practice and the good deeds. So theory and practice go together like the two wings of a bird. Sometimes we're too technique-oriented, and all we think about is the practice, the meditation, which is okay. But if we don't understand what we're doing, then you know, sometimes we're just sitting there trying not to think. That's not meditation. That's just thought suppression or thought wiping. We're not getting paid by the minute. There's no point sitting there and dozing and trying to sit longer. It's about quality, not quantity. Quality of awareness, not quantity. Quality of presence of mind, not quantity of time. There are a lot of different meditation techniques, but they all revolve around the cultivation of awareness, the nowness awareness, the present awareness. So there's a lot more we could say about this, but I just want to prime the pump and put a few uh, newish ideas out. They're not new, but you know, I know that Shaila is mainly concentrating on her Theravadan side these days, so I thought I'd just spice it up with a few, um, you know, tantric uh, spices or exaggerations that she accuses me of. And I'd like to open the floor to any questions. Please ask your questions. Don't save them until the book signing at the end. Because this kind of laser teaching is really the best way to talk to you, not just talk over your head about Buddhism, but to try to access the experience, the lineage that comes down to us. And then we all share in, you know, your own question has a lot of the answer in it. That's why it's easy for Dharma teachers to answer any question, really, not give the answers. Oh, good, there's no questions. Everything's clear. (laughs) Yes, sir. In right view, in wisdom. That's in Mahayana, shunyata, weekly translated as emptiness, shunyata. The Mahayana, the Sanskrit evolution of anatta, no self, is part of the right wisdom. Wisdom, wise view and wise intentions, a wise understanding. Wise view, the sees things as they are. Shunyata doesn't just mean empty nihilism. It means that they're not solid, they're, they're transparent, they're unreal, they're relative. It's hard to translate. Not solid, separate thingness, shunyata. And the second one, right intention or wise understanding. Understanding um, impermanence, you know, anything that's impermanent doesn't have a separate, eternal, solid self, for example. So that's where the shunyata comes in. At the top, in the beginning of the Eightfold Path. Not just in my teaching, that's in Buddhist Eightfold Path. In my teaching, I don't like to talk about emptiness. I never, you notice I didn't mention it tonight. I mean, I may have mentioned not self or some, but you know, anatta, shunyata, that's the hardest nut to crack, I think, in Buddhist thought. So I think it's more important for us to get some grounding in like present awareness in mindfulness, in loving kindness, in ethical self-discipline, in getting ourselves straight, straightening out our lives. That's how we can set our world aright, by writing ourselves. That's why right action, right speech, right livelihood, and all of that. 
not just very abstract things like shunyata and even anatta is a little abstract. But what about me? We all want to know. What do you mean there's no self? Don't I have to take care of myself? Don't I have to have um, uh, health insurance and a roof over my head? Yes. But you ask the questions. Yes. A hard one. Good. Uh, to use your words, real love and compassion, or to use Buddhist words, unconditional love and compassion, is beyond like and dislike. Like, how do you love your children when they're doing things you don't like? Not just your teenagers getting in trouble, but how about when your baby, I don't know if you're a parent, but let's just imagine, when your baby keeps you up at night and, and with colic at three in the morning and you're holding on shoulder and barfs all over you. Now, you don't like that, but do you still, do you not love them enough to put up with it? So, you, your word, real love, I wouldn't want to have to find that, but real love is beyond the dichotomies of like and dislike, which is of attraction, attachment, attraction, desire, and aversion, aggression. So, by cultivating real love, you know, unconditional, impartial compassion, that's why the four Divine Hartitudes, the four Brahma Viharas. How do you translate it, Shaila? The four divine abodes, the four Brahma Viharas go together. Without the equanimity or impartiality, how can it really be loving kindness or compassion if we're only kind to those who are kind to us? How can we ever love our enemy? I mean, even Christians know how to do that. Not, maybe not the president you're thinking about, but Jesus. <laughs> So a combination, including de- spiritual detachment or equanimity, impartiality, not just loving those who love us. You know, I'll love you if you love me. Come on, you first. <laughs> but the how is the challenge. How we can recondition and decondition ourselves from the greed and enmity and fear that we have and our prejudices and our opinions. Now, I don't want to talk about, you know, presidents or name names or anything, but um, I just recall a, like, a personal anecdote. In the 1970s, I think it was, when I was living in India, my friend Ram Das, I'm sure you've heard of him, he went to Stanford. One of the introducers of Eastern thought into America, Ram Das, he lives in Hawaii now, he's somewhat wheelchair-bound after his stroke, but he's a great man. He's still around and writing books and teaching by uh, streaming video. He came back to India. He had gone back to America to visit his dying mother or something. And he came back and he brought a Time magazine about Nixon's impeachment, which I had not heard about. I was in India. We didn't have email or newspapers in those days. And he brought it and he was telling us about this and explaining it's a whole spiritual pageant between light and dark and this and that. After the 60s came... The Nixon and Reagan era is a backlash and blah, blah. And then he said, and he was so angry. He was so furious. I mean, some of you are old enough, unfortunately, to remember these people. He was so furious at Robert McNamara and B.B. Rebozo and, and uh, Spiro Agnew and those disgraced people and then Richard Nixon. So Ram Dass, who had an altar that was like 
I mean, you couldn't find a table big enough to, keep, to hold all the statues and pictures Ramdas liked to have on his altar in India in those days of all his many gurus. He said, I cleaned off a whole section there and I put pictures of Richard Nixon and Robert McNamara and Spiro Agnew on it just to work on seeing the divine through in them too. That was an awesome, I thought, original practice. I mean, what sutra is that taught in? That was great. That was a very adaptive, creative uh, uh, practice of adopting the principles as Buddha teaches, to see the enemy or the unwanted as a teacher and to learn from them. The Dalai Lama is always quoting them and he has plenty to worry about, you know, with the Chinese and Tibet and all that situation. But he's not resentful and bitter to the Chinese. He understands karma. He always says, you have to see, you can learn to see. He's quoting Shanti Deva, the peace master of ancient India, the Mahayana master who wrote the classic book Bodhichari Avatara, the way of the Bodhisattvas, entering the path of the Bodhisattvas, the Bodhichari Avatara, you can read it in English, about how the Bodhisattvas practice patient forbearance as an antidote to anger and all those ten paramitas. I explain this in my new book about the ten practices on the outer and inner and secret levels. Shantideva, Dalai Lama is always quoting him, Shantideva says, the teacher is our, the enemy is our greatest teacher. And how do we understand enemy, first of all, when we think of people? Not just people. Disease, death, crisis, loss. Could be our greatest teacher. Why? It teaches us humility, that we're not in control. That things are impermanent. It breaks down our arrogance. You know, the main religion in this world, according to my way of thinking, is control freakism. The enemy, the adversary, the unwanted, breaks down our arrogance about who's in charge and who's doing what around you. It teaches us humility. It teaches us patience and forbearance. You know, life is full of loss and difficulties. We have to accept that. Isn't that Buddha's first noble truth? Dukkha, dissatisfactoriness, there's no life without suffering. He didn't say life sucks, it's all suffering, but there's no life without suffering. Dissatisfactoriness is the human condition. So I think it's very important to recognize the enemy, the adversary, the unwanted as valuable, more valuable than the, the, the friends who stroke our ego and pat us on the back and tell us we look great no matter what we look like and that whatever we did is great no matter what we do. So that's how we can learn to use the one we don't like. That was your question. And I want to extend that past the notion of enemy to the unwanted. So that we can gain through loss. Adversity tempers the spirit. You know, the pearl principle. No inner irritation, no pearl gets produced in the oyster. The pearl principle. So in Buddhism, Buddha taught that suffering is the proximate cause of the desire for liberation. No suffering, no desire for liberation. Now you may say, if there's no suffering, why would you desire liberation? Well, that's an interesting question. But you ask the questions and you can ask Shiloh. Yes, in the back there. Oh, let me say one more thing about this, about the enemy and the unwanted. This is an extremely crucial subject for us all, Buddhist or otherwise, regardless of what school of Buddhism we're in. You know, Jesus taught to love thine enemy. And, you know, Jesus had a lot of good things to say. There's not always the how and the steps as we may find.
explain why a saintly Christian teacher like Father Thomas Keating could explain it according to Jesus. But according to Buddhism, again, according to like Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism, we would say that there's no unequivocally good or bad, positive or negative. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. You with me? There's only our, what we, you know, I think Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And I'll leave it to you to jump to your greatest demon and think, but isn't so-and-so bad? You, you ask the questions. I'm just giving you the Buddhist thought. It's a steep slope, admittedly, to realize that everything is subjective. There's no unequivocal good or bad. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. And the point of that is to, again, point to who's responsible for our experience. To realize who's on first, as Abbott and Costello taught. Who's on first? Who is on first? I said who. You know, it's a real self-inquiry into who. Which is like, sometimes the question is better than the answer. Questions, yes. Can't hear you, sorry. Sky gazing? Um... That's a whole subject, but Dzogchen meditation, Namkai Nalju, or sky gazing, we often practice inside or outside in a very relaxed posture, upraised gaze, eyes open, mind open. Joseph Goldstein used to call it big sky mind, you know. But Dzogchen, we have a few twists and turns to this about mingling the mind with the space and the sky and the outer and inner and going into the transparency and all that. But you can read about it in my books. That's quite, uh, I think there's a sky gazing meditation guided lie, laid out in the meditation section of Awakening the Buddha Within, the eighth chapter about right meditation. I have five or ten guided meditations and one of them sky gazing. It might be called beach chair meditation. It might be called sky gazing. I can't remember. But that's basically it. So in, in, in Zen, posture is very stressed, you know, this kind of posture. In your tradition here, I don't know, um, Shyla has a bad back, so she stands up often, so she probably doesn't stress posture all that much. In Tibetan Buddhism, although there are many postures, like for Tibetan yoga, there's the six, the seven points of Verochana Buddha, full lotus, and other things. But that's for yoga purposes. But in Dzogchen, which is called the easy, comfy, direct access way, you will see pictures of masters, even in the tankas, in the scroll hangings, like this. Eyes open, but it's, it's a metaphor for openness and awareness. Eyes open, ears open, nose open, mouth open, heart and mind open, posture open, breath open, anus open, diaphragm open. Open, not trying to go in deeper to find anything. Openness and awareness inseparable. Remember the Dzogchen dictum, the six senses and mind is the sixth. The six senses left in their natural state is the way of the great perfection. So not closing our eyes and trying to go deeper or look inwards. So, so sky, we're not sky worshippers or sky watchers, but it's a, sky gazing means a spacious, panoramic, 360-degree awareness practice. Not concentrating, not trying to bring the mind back to an object of attention. It's a more undirected, objectless awareness. Sky gazing. In Tibetan, Namkai Naljur. Sky, space, union, yoga. Literally. Sky, space. Like infinite yoga or union yoga meditation. I call it sky gazing. 
Any other questions? Please. Yes. Intention? Intention. Mm. Good question. No. But that's a little steep. First, we could talk about cultivating positive intentions. You know, first, becoming aware of intention. Like, theoretically, before any act, there's an intention. Now, we do a, not, a lot of knee-jerk reactions, and, you know, but just in general, the mind or the consciousness or something precedes the actions in general, one would say. So becoming more aware of our intentions can help us to uh, tame or refine or train or more intelligently direct, more skillfully direct our actions, meaning our words and thoughts and deeds, which are all forms of action, mental action, verbal action, physical action. But you got to a very good point, which is uh, well explained in the Dzogchen teachings about Rushan, or subtle discernment, discerning between action and action-free or beyond action, discerning between natural and uh, fabrication, discerning between small self and supreme uh, activity. You with me? So when you realize that uh, actually you're not producing your actions or intentions. Freedom, you realize freedom is already there. We're free to be as deluded as we want. We can be uh, sleeping Buddhists for the rest of our lives. No problem. That is the teaching of the great perfection. That there are sleeping Buddhas and there are awakened Buddhas. Our only task is to awaken to who and what we truly are. Have I said that before? We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize and realize who and what we are. That's the meaning of enlightenment, self-realization, and so on. So freedom is the inherent nature of being. We think we're doing it, to put it grossly. But, I mean, don't take my word for it. I mean, one won't anyway. We need to find out for ourselves. Confirm these rumors from the past, however wise or high, mighty, sounding, or recommended they may be. If we don't confirm it for ourselves, we have not replicated the results that Buddha talked about. So that's why we're Dharma farmers, we're Dharma practitioners. You know, we're the future young Buddhas of America. Dharma farming. We have to cultivate in tune with the universal principles and then nature does the rest. Yes? The nature of clinging... Oh, that's easy to understand. The nature of clinging causes suffering because it's like the tighter you grip onto that which is impermanently passing through your fingers, the more you get rope burn. It hurts, rope burn, irritation, you're with me, friction. The tighter you grip on that which is passing through our fingers, now I'm not just talking about this, life, relations, everything, youth, health is impermanent, they say. The tighter you grip to that which is impermanent, the more you get irritation and friction there is. It doesn't mean we have to throw everything away. Buddha taught the middle way, remember. Not too tight and not too loose. Mothering, not smothering. I think Buddha said that. Something like that. (laughs) The middle way, not too tight and not too loose. Is that clear to you? Impermanence. Let's talk about in a more business-like manner. Investing in fool's gold. What brings disappointment? Let's try to find out what the real gold is and invest or rely on that. You know, what doesn't change? 
if anything. What is reliable? Or just get used to living, dancing in emptiness, standing in, in, in the groundless, not looking for a secure bunker to hunker down into. That's why it's often said, desire, craving, fervid craving, intense grasping is the root of suffering. Because of ignorance about this, we grasp that which is unreal and suffer. Like chasing, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm sure we all know that song. We've played it many times out in our own lives. Once a Tibetan Lama who came to America, I was translating for, he said, you Americans, you know, it's always easy to poke fun, but it really just means worldly beings. You think that happiness and suffering comes from outside. That's the big mistake. Looking for what we think we need in the wrong places. That's what we talk about equanimity or detachment or non-attachment. So we don't grip too tightly to that which is slipping through our fingers and feel disappointed or rope burn. So we can, as William Blake sang, this is just universal wisdom. He who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. Tweet, 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 tweet. <laughs> he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. This is universal wisdom. Buddhism, Shmudism, universal wisdom, non-clinging, non-attachment, the cling-free relationship, hard to find. You know why Buddhists don't really like vacuum cleaners, don't you? I mean, some Buddhist bachelors do, but Buddhists don't like vacuum cleaners. Too many attachments. (laughs) (laughs) Another version of it is, how can you recognize a Buddhist vacuum cleaner? It has no attachments. <laughs> Sorry. I'm running out of jokes. Questions? Anything? I know we're almost at the time for the last rites. Yes. Good question. What's the difference between non-attachment and detachment? I don't know. Nobody's really ever asked me that before. I mean, I, I don't really know anything. People pull it out of me sometimes or not. I think it's just a matter of nomenclature. We'd have to define terms, so how we want to define them. Non-attachment, spiritual detachment. You know, notice every time I said it tonight, I said spiritual detachment, not just detachment, because we think of detachment as a little too cold is our association with it. Upeka, upeksha, the fourth Brahma-vihara, the four boundless heartitude. It means the spiritual detachment. It's caring but detached. Like the grandparents are more detached from the grandchildren and their shenanigans than the parents who are more invested in the kids, right? That's why grandparents have such a good time with the kids because they're not any more worried and responsible. So spiritual detachment is a very caring but uh, has a bigger perspective. So that's non-attachment. But uh, we can talk about this in, in other ways. But we shouldn't think that non-attachment or detachment is indifferent or complacent. Well, you know, lassitude or passivity. No. It's like the grandparent watching the kids play in the backyard. You know, bang, bang, you're dead, whatever. The grandparent knows not to get caught up in who wins and loses and that it's just a game. But yet, if a child falls and breaks their arm or something, the grandparent knows 
had you know is always attentively get involved, right? So similarly, when we recognize shunyata or emptiness or or the insubstantiality of things, the dreamlike nature of things, we feel compassion for we have understanding of the dreamlike nature and shenanigans of the nightmare people are caught in. So we try to help them have a better dream. But if we can't wake them up to have a better dream, we are not depressed. Now, Buddha doesn't get depressed because he's not, it's not like he's waiting for us all to get enlightened too. Remember when Buddha woke, became clear, everything was clear to him. That would be another translation, my translation, of when I was awakened, all were awakened. When we become clear, everything is clear. So we naturally feel compassion for those that don't understand. So that's non-attachment or detachment, but it still could be warm and caring. Yet equanimous, upekja, impartial, spiritually detached, not invested in, not expecting particular outcomes. I hope that's clear. You could try with Shiloh or somebody else. Uh, it depends on how you want to define terms like non-attachment. You know, we could get into, is there a difference between desire, clinging, attachment, craving? And I'd say yes. We could discern some differences. Maybe, maybe clinging and attachment are the same. Maybe craving is a little different and desire is a little different. Like if you're thirsty and you desire water, is that the same as the fervid clinging that really causes suffering? Or is it just, you know, like an autonomic response? Like when it's time to breathe in, the body desires to breathe in. Is that Kalesha Varana? I don't know. Is that, is that laced with delusion and confusion? I don't know. If we really study these things, we can make a lot of subtle distinctions and go a lot deeper into self understanding and reality understanding. You know, Buddhist practice is reality time. Buddhism is about discovery, not belief. It's a wisdom tradition, not a faith. There's nothing to believe in or subscribe to, everything to discover for ourselves. Yes, in the back row, ma'am. Through the gradual steps is the more safe, tried and true path. For sure. But once you're awakened, you don't follow them. You just live that way. You know, it, it follows you wherever you go. You can't escape it. Is what? A true awakening or a pseudo-awakening? Well, you'd have to say, is it a true path or is it just an intellectual path? I don't know. I I assume she's talking in the context we were talking here about, like the Eightfold Path or some tried and true path, not just a mental path uh, leading to mental, I don't know, gratification. But that's up to you to know whether, let's use the word authentic again. Is it an authentic path that fits you or not? It's like, how can I tell you what, how you should dress or what your true vocation is? Isn't that something a grown-up has to find out for themselves? Similarly with your spiritual life. 
Is it authentically true for you? I mean, you can follow someone else, but you're responsible for deciding whether to follow or not to follow. Don't fool yourself and disempower yourself by saying they made me do it. James Jones made me do it. Go to Jonestown or Waco. Bullshit. Who decided that? Except oneself. Don't. Uh, the late great Dujum Rinpoche said, wrap around, this is such a Tibetan image, I know, I love it, maybe I'll just close with this. Wrap around your own head the rope, like an ox, the rope, let's say the leash that leads from your nose. Wrap around your own head the leash that leads from the ring in your nose, oh oxen. Don't hand the leash to someone else unless you're absolutely sure. And that's very hard to do. Even the Buddha, I was just reading something, some notes that Charlotte gave me today, because Charlotte was telling me that the Buddha made some jokes, so we were looking into the sutras to try to find some, which we haven't found yet, but I'm sure she'll, <laughs> she'll find some if she has to retranslate all this short, middle, and long discourses. But I, there's a, a, an interesting story in there where um, Sabuti, who was a great enlightened um, arhat master, you know, not a schlepper, a real arhat master, I think it was Sabuti, he said um, something about the Buddha is the ultimate, greatest, most enlightened, omniscient being or something. You know, of course, there was a whole paragraph repetitive in the old style with all these superlatives. He was telling it to some faithful people that were questioning that. And Buddha said to Sabuti, how do you know? Have you checked with the minds of all the enlightened ones of the past, present, and future and all the enlightened arhats to know that I am the most supreme enlightened blah, 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 blah? See, he busted Sabuti, who I think was probably an arhat by then. So that's important. It's important to be humble, you know. There's always somebody who's um, more humble than you. There's always some, somebody, you know. So in our tradition, in a lineage, we always, it's very hard to be too arrogant or proud when we think about our masters and those who have gone before and how, how great they are. How deep and how generous and how gracious and how wise and how they practiced for so many decades. Then we can't take ourselves too seriously after a few, you know, being veteran of a few foreign retreats. So in closing, I just want to quote the great Buddhist saying, you just can't believe everything that you think. Thank you all. Good night. So I guess I'll sit over there and sign books. Shyla, is that what you want me to do, or should I do it over here? Okay, I'll, I'll do it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.